Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. not depend upon the screen this evening you'll have to depend upon that leather bound book in your lap called a bible tonight amen but we will for the most part be right there in first kings in the story of elijah amen so that should not be too difficult uh, too difficult for you this there as again there there might not be no cohesiveness necessarily uh, to everything that i say but just a few tidbits from the life of Elisha, for some this may be boring, uh, but we will just uh, uh, deal with you later. <laughs> Amen. From, from the life of Elijah, I could not, but as I was uh, looking at several different items today, uh, a thought or something had come back to my mind that I had heard someone said, and I may be mistaken, I can't really place my thumb on who exactly but I think it may have been Brother Osborne, uh, uh, Brother Mason, whenever uh, we were at Let's Talk, and you'll be able to uh, validate whether or not that was the case or not. Uh, But I thought it was valid enough that I think it is to share uh, to uh, this group of people here this evening. And that is we go again, and our minds are recalled back to James 5, verse 17, that we have read more than one time. Uh, during this series and during this study on Elijah, how Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he, and he prayed that the heavens would be shut up, and so they were. And then he prayed again and that the heavens were opened. Yet even in our study of a few weeks ago, whenever we read concerning that time frame in which uh, Elijah prayed again, and he found himself back upon the mountain upon Carmel and he was in that birthing position if you will remember upon his hands and upon his knees and he was cast down and no doubt that was the time in which he was praying the Old Testament scripture doesn't specifically uh, state that but we can draw from his posture that that's probably uh, what this man of God was doing and he told his servant Uh, to get up now if you want some reference that's chapter 18 verses like 43 through 46 that he told his servant to go look toward the sea because he's expecting uh, some rain any moment because that is what God has promised to him and that's what God has told him to speak in the ears and in the presence of Ahab and his servant came back and said uh, there is nothing the prophet could not handle that he couldn't be situated with that because he knew what God said So he goes back and he tells him to go again seven times. Now, there's different ways that you can envision this. You can envision a man of God that's down on his hands and face and he's praying and he's being interrupted seven times maybe by a a servant uh, that hasn't seen anything yet. Or you can read it through the notion that Elijah prays and he says, go look, comes back nothing. Then he goes back and says, well, let's pray again. Pray, sends a servant back and says, go look. Comes back, well, let's pray again. You can look at it as he had a steady prayer that was interrupted seven times or that he prayed seven times until there was a cloud the size or about, it looked as like a man's hand and then he knew that there was going to come abundance of rain. The statement that, uh, or the, 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 the comparison rather in contrast that was drawn uh, whenever I heard this was this. 
is that it took Elijah praying one time to shut up the heavens, but seven times to open the heavens up. One prayer just to close it up. Seven times, though, to open it back up. The moral, or if you will, the emphasis being that it's a whole lot easier to shut up heaven than it is to open it up. And that even just in life, very simply and vaguely, we got to be careful what we do because it's easier for us to shut up the heavens. Even for people that have come and went and come and went. Even with life concerning church, it's a whole lot easier just to deny, shut the door on the things of God than it is to try to reopen that door that you shut. Amen. And so with that, we go on in this tidbit journey. All right, ladies and gentlemen. In verse number 7 of 1 Kings chapter 19, and the, which was my, my verse for you tonight, really didn't have a verse that could capsulize everything that I was going to just hit on here and there. But when we look at verse number 7, this is where the angel of the Lord is touching him and coming to him the second time. He has already touched him the first time and had told him to arise and eat, but now he touches him the second time. And again, the, the, the words that are spoken to him that he needs to arise and that he needs to eat. And this next phrase is a phrase that I've always held very dear to my heart and I've used in even speaking to people sometimes. And that is because he gave the reason now for this arising and this eating. He said, because the journey is too, T-O-O, it is too great for thee. The journey is too great for thee because Elijah right now currently is in a position that he has taken a lot of what has happened thus far upon his shoulders. He's taken a lot of what has happened upon his shoulders and I believe undoubtedly that he's had a little bit of help from his adversary. Because the first verse of chapter 19 tells us that whenever Ahab went back to mama Jezebel and began to tattletale on Elijah, that he speaks to her and says and tells her all that Elijah had done. Slaying of the prophets, the great, the great things that happened up on Mount Carmel and the fire fallen. And he was attributing a lot of what happened to the man of God rather than the God of the man. So he, he's placing a lot of this. I think there's a little bit of help in this because, because Ahab's saying, look at everything that Elijah had done. But in essence, it wasn't. Elijah was the instrument in the hand. He was the physical flesh you could touch and see. But it was not the literal doings of the man Elijah. It was the doings of the Lord. And so I believe Elijah got to a place that he began to take a lot of everything that's happened upon his shoulders. And somehow the line got very blurred between what God had done and what Elijah was as a player in everything. Amen. Because that's very easy to do. And I've had conversation with uh, somebody today and we spoke along the lines a little bit how that's very easy to do to begin to uh, make that line a little bit less visible about where God really stands in all the episodes and what you're playing, your part as a player is in it. Understanding that you are per se in certain aspects, you are a pawn on the board that's being used by the master. Amen. That line is easy to get blurred. Amen. It's easy to get blurred in ministry. 
It's easy to get blurred in any aspect of ministry. I'm not just talking about preaching or teaching ministry, any aspect of ministry. And it's easy to get blurred just in life in general because we see that he's taken this on his shoulder because his response now to God in verse number 10, whenever God asks him what he's doing here, his statement, and you, if I may read it to you in verse 10 of 1 Kings 19, the Bible says, and he said, this is Elijah, notice now, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. I don't know, but there's a whole lot of Elijah going on in verse number 10. Amen. I've been jealous for the Lord, but nobody else has really cared much. I've done great exploits for God and I've stood among all the people and all of this is true to a certain extent but God even conveys to him that there are 7,000 that have not bowed down to Baal. You are not the only one but a line had become very blurred in Elijah's life and he started taking a bunch of this upon himself. I, 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 even I am the only one. I am the only one left and I'm doing this and they're seeking for my life. I, me, my. All of this stuff is going forth and I think the Lord has really taken Elijah to a place here that he had to remind him of something. He had to remind him of something with that second touch that he placed upon his life to arise and eat what he had prepared. He said, Elijah, this journey is too great for you. Whenever we started this thing so long ago and you first entered the palace of Ahab, I never meant for you to shoulder this load by yourself. I never meant you to walk by Cherith and Zarephath and Mount Carmel and the slaying of, of Baal and all these. I never meant for you to do that by yourself. You've taken upon yourself an undue burden. You've taken upon yourself undue burden. He says, so I need to remind you this journey right now, where you're at and where you are going, it is absolutely too great for you. I've always stated to people in this scripture and statement that God never said it was too great for him. He just wanted Elijah to know this is too great for you. In other words, Elijah, you cannot do this by yourself. You cannot do this alone. Look over your shoulder. What have you done? You have isolated yourself, Elijah. You have quarantined yourself. For that matter, the Bible tells us very plainly, if we look at Scripture, that after he went to a certain place and he has went thus far and he's under the juniper tree and all this thing has happened unto him. Amen. That whenever he came to the land of Beersheba in verse number 3 of chapter 19, he came there, but it's there that he left his servant. And the Bible says that himself, nobody with him now, himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. Let me tell you, there are two different scenarios in Scripture that my mind wraps around concerning wilderness experiences, and that is, and there's two different results for that matter. You can be brought into a wilderness by self, as Elijah was. He went to the wilderness himself, or like Jesus was in Luke 4, he was led into the wilderness by the Spirit. Now, we got two, two distinct, contrasting, comparison episodes here of what happens when you go find your wilderness and God finds a wilderness for you. Elijah journeys himself into a wilderness. 
and we find him in a situation of despair. We find him in a situation of self-pity. Amen. We find him in a situation of toting all of the load upon his own shoulders. We find him in a place that he's despondent and depressed and he's wanting to die because Elijah isolated himself, quarantined himself, left his servant behind and says, I'm going into the wilderness. But, but on the flip side of the coin, in Luke chapter number 4, we see that Jesus is led by the Spirit, the Bible plainly says, led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Was he tempted? Yes. Did he have his trial? Yes. But he could come back all the time with the Word. And whenever he left from there, he left in the power of the Spirit. He didn't allow that to make him feel as though he was totally isolated and forsaken. He was still in tap with power because the Spirit that led him into the wilderness was the Spirit that was going to lead him through the wilderness. But here's Elijah, man, he's throwing up his hands. Self-pity, despair, kill me, it's over, just do away with it. And the mercy and the grace of God found him even in that wilderness and helped him through it. But I want you to know how many wildernesses have we went to not being led by the Spirit? Amen. I dare to say those wildernesses are the ones where we do arbor spirits of self-pity. Amen. Rather than being confident in the Lord Jesus Christ and the one who should, if at any time you're going to go to a wilderness, you better make sure it's spirit-led. And second of all, well, never mind. Make sure it's spirit-led. Notice where Elijah goes, the tidbits of the Tishbite. Notice where he goes in verse number 9. He's in the wilderness. He, he's now, he has ate and he has partaken of the substance and he's going to go on the strength of it for 40 days and 40 nights into Horeb, the mount of God in verse number 8. And in verse number 9, he's going to a mountain, the mountain of God, but more particularly in verse 9, he came thither unto a cave. Anytime you see caves that are mentioned in Scripture, Caves are not usually looked too favorably upon. There's usually not too much fruitfulness that has taken place in a cave. For that matter, if you ever went and visited a cave, it's usually dark unless they have some type of artificial lighting. It's damp. It smells. There's not a whole lot of good things that you associate with caves, and that's not the case likewise in Scripture. If I may illustrate to you this evening, if you'll turn with me to Genesis chapter number 19, the Bible speaks at this time that, that Lot and his family are in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. They have already received the instruction of the angel of the Lord that they need to get out of there. They need to go because the Lord is going to destroy uh, the city with fire and brimstone. And so God is telling them, here's what I want you to do. In Genesis 19 and verse number 17, amen. The Bible says, and it came to pass when they had brought them forth abroad that he said, this is God speaking to them now, he says, escape for thy life. Look not behind thee, neither stay thou in all the plain, but escape to the mountain. Escape to the mountain, lest thou be Consume. Now notice what happens as we continue. Verse 18. And Lot said unto them, Amen. Oh, not so, my Lord. Behold, now thy servant hath found grace in thy sight. 
Thou hast magnified thy mercy which thou hast shewed unto me in saving my life. And I cannot escape to the mountain, lest some evil take me and I die. Behold now, this city is near to flee unto. And it is a little one. Oh, let me escape thither. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live? And he said unto him, See, I have accepted thee concerning this thing also, that I will not overthrow this city for which thou hast spoken of. And so he escapes to a little city by the name of Zoar. There's something I want you to understand tonight. Notice, though, the, 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 uh, if you could call it this, the, the way that Lot was reasoning. He said, this city that I desired to go to, he said, this city is near to flee unto. Here is Sodom, Gomorrah, wickedness, perversion. God sees fit. There's enough going on there. I'm going to destroy it. And rather than getting at a great distance from it, this is what God is just wanting to abolish here. And rather than getting from great distance from it, Lot's saying, hey, God, let me just go a little distance. I mean, this city over here, Zoar, it's near. Let me go just a little distance from here and, 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 because this is close to where I came from. Amen. So just let me go a little space over here and let me go just right here. The Bible says, though, after a time, you can continue reading. If you go down and continue reading, the Bible says that after a while, amen, that here is Lot. He doesn't even stay there at that city. He does not stay there at that place. But I think it's in verse number 30, and Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountain. All right, he's doing exactly what God told him to do now. Wrong. And his two daughters with him, for he feared to dwell in Zoar, and he dwelt in a cave. He and his two daughters. What happened in that cave? That's where the incestuous relationship with his two daughters happened. So that when we look, begin to look through Scripture, caves do not have, if you will, are not very favorably looked upon. God said, go to a mountain. He says, let me go to a place that's near. Then he arises from there, and we think, man, he's on the right track. He's going to the mountain. Not the case. He goes to a cave, and some bad things happen there. In Judges chapter number 6, we read of Gideon, the children of Israel, under Midianite oppression for about seven years and the Bible says they made themselves strongholds dens and caves to live in in the mountain and they weren't threshing any wheat there there wasn't anything profitable or fruitful that was happening there it was a cave caves are not spoken very well of as a matter of fact caves a lot of time through scripture are used for graves amen used for graves we see in John chapter 11 and verse 38 Jesus is coming to the rescue, if you will, of Lazarus. He has already wept. People said, oh, he loved him much. He said, show me where you've laid him. The Bible says that he goes there in John chapter 11 and verse 38, and he comes to the grave, which was a cave. And he's groaning in his spirit. Caves is where death is. Caves is where death occurs. Amen. There's a lot of graves. The, the cave of Machpelah, Abraham and his family purchased and bought the land to bury everybody there because caves are somehow associated with that. And so here is Elijah, the man of God. We knew it was a bad thing whenever he went into the cave because a lot of people that go into a cave never come out of it. I'm speaking through biblical sense. A lot of people that go into a cave never come out of it. As a matter of fact, you can read of a story, and I'm just going to hit some of the highlights here, but you can read of a story in Joshua chapter number 10 that there were five kings that had a conspiracy, and these five kings thought, you know what, we'll go hide ourselves in a cave. 
Joshua 10 and verse number 16. These five kings fled and hid themselves in a cave. We denote later that Joshua and the children of God, they rolled a stone upon the cave. So we have these five kings that go to a cave that think we're going to hide there. This is going to be all right. Thought it was going to be a safe place. And, another, and instead of being a safe place, it became a place that entrapped them. Amen. I believe Elijah was in a very vulnerable spot right here. He was in a cave, but he was in a cave that God was trying, and we'll see a little later, was trying to lead him out of. Because God knew what caves led to. These five kings that hid in the cave, that later became trapped in the cave, Joshua when the men came back later, got them out of the cave, killed them, put them back in the cave that they were hid in, and the cave became their grave. I think today sometimes, even in apostolic churches, that God's trying to call some of us out of our caves. He was saying, Elijah, you can't stay in this stupor. You can't stay in your self-pity. You can't stay in this, oh, all of this that I have done stuff. You can't do that. You've got to come out of your cave because if you don't, you're going to become trapped in that and it's going to consume your life. So he, he was needing to come up out of the cave and that's what the Lord was trying to do with him. In, in, in 1 Kings 19 and verse number 11, he was calling to him. The Bible says in verse 11 of 1 Kings 19, and he said, go forth, speaking to Elijah, stand upon the mount. Get out of the cave, get on the mountain. He said, go and stand upon the mount before the Lord, and behold the Lord, this is where the Lord passes by him with the earthquake, and the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. Passes by him with the wind, but the Lord wasn't in the wind. Passes by him with the fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. Now look, the command to Elijah was come out and stand on the mount, but Elijah was disobedient. Verse 13 bears to me that he was disobedient. This is probably one of the few times you'll mark disobedience in his life, but he was disobedient. In verse number 13, the Bible says, and it was so when Elijah heard it, that is that still small voice, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering end of the cave. So when God said, go get out of the cave and stand on the mount, Elijah says, I'm sticking right here because I've been shouldering a lot of load here. And I've been going through some stuff and I'm in this wilderness. Why are you there, buddy? I mean, what's, what's going on here? And all the, he doesn't obey God until there's all these great exploits that pass before him. And then all of a sudden, boom, he tunes back into that still, small voice of God that he knew unequivocally. And then he comes forth and he's obedient to the master and he comes forth there to the entering in of his cave. How do you know, Brother McGee, that Elijah was having some problems just with self? I'll tell you how I knew because the Bible says whenever he heard it, whenever he heard the still small voice, that he wrapped his face in his mantle. If I can say it like this, he wrapped who he was in what he was. Because the mantles and the attire that they have, it would denote whether that man was a prophet or whether he was a teacher. His garb would denote what place of life that he served in, whether he was a scribe or whether he was a Pharisee. His mantle was what he was. But Elijah, in the presence of the Almighty God, some people say, you, you know, like a kid, you ever seen a kid get in trouble and they bow their head and they're trying to hide their face? Huh? I know I've seen they're peeking up over the edge like, 
They can't see just my eye. I know they can't see my eyeballs. I can see them, but you can't see me. Ha, 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 ha. And what is that? That shame coming upon them. They're feeling shameful. But what Elijah was doing, he said, I'm, I'm, I'm wrapping my face here. I'm wrapping who I am in what I am. That's a man that had some problems with self. Amen. Had some problems with self. He was wrapping his face, who he was, in his calling. Amen. He's wrapping himself in his calling. He was getting lost. He was getting lost in chapter 19. He's getting lost in his own calling. Ran for his life down to Beersheba. Goes into the wilderness by himself. And he's saying all this stuff about what he's taking upon his shoulder. He's getting lost in his own calling. Left his servant behind there in isolation. Amen. So God's trying to call him out of this place and trying to call him out about where he is at and trying to get him somewhere different, wanting him to understand that there's more for you to do, Elijah. So he speaks to him in verse number 15, and he speaks some very clear words unto the prophet. And the Lord said unto him, he says, Go return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. He said, Go return on thy way. If I could say it like this, Elijah, you need to get back to where you departed. Many people say that that going and returning is actually retracing the footsteps that he had got himself into the wilderness. You need to take that path back out of the wilderness. You need to go and return on the way. I know in life sometimes, uh, for that matter, if we might bring an analogy of the way that we travel, uh, I will never forget this. This is years and years ago before my wife and I was ever uh, married. Uh, there were at one time three of us that had sweethearts in Tennessee. It was myself, and it was Jeremy Penrod, and it was Brad Worth. And uh, sometimes we made trips down there, all three of us together. They were in close proximity to each other. Uh, but on one of the trips, I was not able to go. So Jeremy uh, Penrod and Brad Worth made a trip to see the Sweethearts in Tennessee. And they went down, not I-24 way, but I-75 way through Louisville and Lexington. And uh, I will never forget the story as they came back bearing the news. Uh, there at Lexington, you're supposed to hit I-75. And uh, I don't know, maybe they were seeing stars and everything else before they even entered Tennessee. But for some reason, they never made the turn. They never got on that, that interstate. And uh, I remember Jeremy saying, he said, I knew something was wrong whenever I said a sign that said, Welcome to West Virginia. Now that's quite a distance to realize that you've gone the wrong way. But you know what you got to do in a notion like that? You got to turn around and go the same way that you just came to get back on track. And I think God was trying to relate something to Elijah. Hey, honey, you need to turn this thing around. Whatever path got you here, you need to take that path back out of here and get back on track. Go and return. Has God ever given you a go and return? Amen. <laughs> Tell you what, I think I pay a little bit closer attention to the signs. I'd hate to go that far out of the way. Shoo. I'm glad I wasn't with him on that trip. I would I dare to say God to help me seen it. Um, but then again, love is blind. <laughs> she said, go, go on your way. Now we spoke just a little bit last week. Tidbits now. I'm just I'm just touching and going here. Tidbits from the tish bite. We seen last week that God had commissioned Elijah to do three anointings and we understand last week that there was only one anointing that he actually did and it seems as though that it may have even been the first anointing that he sought out to do that he went and he found 
Elisha, the Bible tells us in verse 19, he departed thence and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he with the 12th, and Elijah. What Elijah's about ready to do here is a big test about what he's just went through. Listen to me. It's a big test about what he's just went through. Because he comes to Elisha, he passed by him, and look what he does. He cast his mantle upon Elisha. So Elijah now is in careful pursuit. The first thing that he's trying to do now after this intermingling with God and God setting things all back in order, what he's trying to do is to anoint a successor before anything else. He's trying to anoint a successor. And he casts his mantle, which is evidence of his calling, of what he is and what he does. He's casting that upon Elisha. He, God had already told him. He said, you need to find Elisha, the son of Shaphat. He's going he's to be prophet in thy room. In other words, he's going to be prophet in thy stead. So Elijah finds him. He casts his mantle, his calling upon Elisha. And look what begins to happen. Look now. Instead of this being the Elijah show. All right. Instead of this being the Elijah show and getting to a place and God telling him, hey, this is too great for you. You can't do this by yourself. And coming to terms with all that and really getting to a place where he's willing to share his ministry. All right? And he casts that upon him. When you begin to read chapters 20 and you begin to read chapters 21, whenever he was willing to share his ministry, and I'm not talking about uh, preaching and teaching, I mean getting in yoke with someone with a same similar mindset in ministry. Well, I'm saying, you know, there used to be times years ago, and this is part of the reason I'm just sharing this, so, you know, maybe I'm just murdering the whole thing tonight. That's all right. Jesus saves, I'll murder, he saves. But years ago, we had these poor Sunday school teachers that were serving life sentences as teachers. <laughs> I don't know who ever gave them life sentence for teachers. And not every one of them was like this, but I could see where this would happen, where people just start saying, well, these are my students. This is my class. Those are my scissors. <laughs> that could happen. And so we switch around now every quarter because nobody gets any ownership. Not just because of that, for more than just that reason, but it's very easy to start owning a ministry. Anybody else start edging in that has some interest, you don't see it as though maybe they could share the load. You see as though, well, they're going to try to take over. I've seen a lot of churches stymied in their growth because there's too many people involved in ministry who wasn't willing to share ministry but was afraid they was going to come in and take over. That isn't the right attitude, though. Elijah had to get to a place he understood what was taking place here. Elisha's not. Elisha's right now at this juncture in the road of me casting my man on him. He's not taking over the ministry. But what he's doing, he's sharing in my ministry. And I'm preparing for a successor because I'm not going to live forever. Preparing for a successor because I am not going to live forever. And whenever he came to terms with the understanding of sharing that, and cast this mantle upon Elisha. Look what happens in chapters 20 and 21. We come to a place that God calls Elijah back in the presence of Ahab. And guess what Elijah now is able to do? He's capable now. He's capable of being able to declare victory over his enemies Ahab and Jezebel. In chapter 21 and up to this time that's never before been done. For that matter he's in the wilderness now because he's afraid of Jezebel. But now because he yoked up with someone. Uh 
and is able to share in the ministry. We see now later he's able to declare victory over his enemies because he's not toting this thing alone. He's not by himself. He's not in isolation. He wasn't swallowed and consumed by the cake. He understood, hey, I'm not always going to be here. And if these miracles are going to continue, I've got to have someone to be able to train, to be able to... The heartbeat of me around this place for a long time, folks, in anything and everything we do, man, we need to raise up people that can somehow fill our shoes. We need another Brother Mason, folks. We need somebody else in the music. We need to have successors that can share. In the, does that mean they're taking over today? Not necessarily so. But it means that there's somebody to help Help right now along the way and there's training and there's t- there's tutoring and stuff that takes place so the day that the whirlwind comes and the fire happens that that man can go back to the same Jordan River that his predecessor went to and as it split for him it'll split for Elisha that doesn't just happen I'm, this might be the wrong congregation bishop I don't know you know to speak these things too tonight we must have successors in our ministries. There must be successors in our ministries. There is an art of succession that I believe Elijah caught on to. He understood that he was calling one alongside himself of a similar heart and calling him to help. Scripture even bears it out. What does, Eli- what does Elisha do after that mantle's on him? Does he just kind of, yep, give it to me, put it on, here we go, you ready, Bubba? Big boy's here now. Just step aside. No. The Bible states plainly what happened in the very last verse there in the last phrase. After he had already killed the oxen and, 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 and had the sacrifice and all these things and bid his mother and father farewell. In verse 21, it tells us plainly what that Elisha done. That he arose and went after Elijah and ministered unto him. Ministered. Similar, similar cut of the cloth, similar calling that was placed upon his life. And he's ministering to him. He's not taking over right now. He's ministering to him. Will there be a day that that transition will take place for him? Yeah. But it's not now. Until it takes place, you know what he's going to be doing? Ministering to Elijah. Let me tell you, folks. Over the years with Bishop and I, what took place whenever I came home five years ago? It was not me coming in here shooting guns and having spurs on my heels and kicking a horse. No. You know what? I came home and I dared to say, I know Bishop. No, Bishop's heart, we talked quite extensively the other night on the phone just, just because. And, and whenever we were talking, we, this idea of succession and things of that notion came up. You know whatever I did whenever I came home? I just ministered to him. What are you saying? I just did some things that it really he didn't really need to have on his plate to do. Just ministered to him. And now so much time has elapsed and now he's been caught up into the whirlwind. <laughs> Chariots of fire. And now I'm able to go to the brook that he has went to before and say, these things need a part. And that's able to happen just because I ministered to him, but in the process of pouring water on his hands, something else was being poured in my heart. Amen. And that was the position then of Elisha, pouring pouring water on the hands of Elijah. Even later years when Elijah is dead and gone and in the tomb, you know how one person even denoted? He said, is there even a prophet among us that can do anything? He said, well, there's Elisha, the son of Shaphat. He poured water. That's exactly how they described him. He, Elijah's dead in the tomb, and they're saying, he poured water on the hands of Elijah. 
what were they saying? You know how Elijah was, don't you? You know who he was. You know what kind of person he was. Well, he poured hands. He was a servant unto the servant. You know what he was saying? He was saying he's a person of similar calling, of similar fabric, and similar material. Amen. It's not, it should not be an intimidation. An intimidation around here, folks, that let's say you start a ministry around this church, you get it off the ground, and it's running, and it's going great to have someone come along interested enough in that that you can't yoke them right to your side and show them the ropes. Don't feel intimidated and don't feel because it started under your tenure that it's yours. It's ultimately God's. It's ultimately God's. Because if you get the idea that, listen, we're ready to call a ministry is ours as long as it's flourishing. But whose is it whenever it's not? Because if you're willing to call it yours whenever it's flourishing, why are we so quick to divorce from it whenever it's not? See, if you leave it in God's, if you leave it positioned and titled as His, you'll be able to even withstand the ups and downs of that ministry a whole lot better whenever you leave it being He's the owner rather than you're the owner. Yeah, because if you just take it all up on your shoulders of being yours, whenever it rises, you'll rise. And whenever it falls, you'll fall. And you'll be on a roller coaster ride because ministry is that of ups and downs of whenever it's successful. Wow, yeah, bless God, we really did it. And whenever it's down, you'll feel like it's all you too. And you'll take it on your own. Oh, what am I doing wrong? I must be doing something horrible and blah, 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 blah. Uh-huh. Well, the kids just didn't really respond in class today. And I know I, I probably should have put more. It doesn't have nothing to do with that. It's God. Unburden yourself. Undo yourself. Don't find yourself in a cave. Don't let it swallow you up. Don't allow that cave to become your grave. Stand with me tonight. I close. And there will be there will be a trial in every individual's life that serves in some spot of ministry about what you do with the accolades and the praise of people. The Bible records the story in Acts chapter number 14 and verse number 12. The Bible says, and they called Barnabas, Jupiter, and Paul, Mercurius, because he was the chief speaker. It just had some things just shake down right here and people saw what Paul had done, but there was a person that could not stand upright and uh, had been lame and they began to walk and they were healed. And the Bible says that Paul was the chief speaker and so they called him Curious. Then the priests of Jupiter, which was before their city, brought oxen and garlands into the gates and would have done sacrifice with the people which when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of, what they was getting ready to do, they was doing, getting ready to do sacrifice in honor to Barnabas and Paul here, man, great power, great exploits. Whew. These are mighty men. They're about ready to do all that, but instead of accepting such things, they were very quick to where that should be denoted. They brought these oxen and garlands to the gates and would have done sacrifice with the people, which when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they rent their clothes, ran in among the people crying out and saying, Sirs! Why do you these things? 
We also are men of like passions with you and preaching to you that ye should turn from these vanities into the living God which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein. You want to talk about a big trial? A big trial is what to do with the praise of men. That's what Paul and Barnabas understood very well. He said, we're not going to receive it for ourselves. He said, but we're going to turn these accolades. We're going to turn this sacrifice from being pointed to humanity. He said, let's turn this to the living God which made heaven and which made earth. It's what we do with the accolades of men. We turn them toward God. One preacher used to say, he said, every thank you that I ever got, he said, I just tucked back in my hand, always put my hand in every, whenever I went to prayer, I just gave them to God as a bouquet and say, here they are, Lord. Thank you. Appreciate it, God. Appreciate it, God. Appreciate it, God. Hallelujah. Can we just bow our heads tonight? Tidbits from the Tishbite tonight. God, I pray, oh, Lord Jesus, today, God, that you help us. God, I truly believe, God, that you'll help us. God, the only time, God, that I see this man of God slipping up in his role of obedience is whenever he thought, Lord, that it was all upon his shoulders and it was all his load. God, I pray, Jesus, God, that you would help us this evening. God, I want to be able, Lord, to be sensitive to your voice and to your call that in my life, God, when that next individual, whenever, whoever, God, that may be, God is going to move in the room, Lord Jesus, even of the pastor of this church, that I'd be willing, Father, to allow them, Lord, into that ministry and cast a mantle upon them. And, Lord Jesus, that your purpose and your will would be done, Lord God, in it. God, I don't want to, Lord Jesus, to claim ownership. God, I try, Lord Jesus, in prayer to remind, God, you, not so much as so as myself, but, God, I pray, God, these are your people. This church is your church. This service is your service. I pray, oh, Lord God, that we are all, Lord Jesus, just servants in this place. We're beggars, just a beggar telling another beggar where they can find bread. I pray, oh, Lord, today. God, move up on your people. God, people have served in ministry. People have served in different, Lord, places and venues and avenues. And I pray, oh, God, today, Lord, if any of them are finding themselves in the wilderness that they've walked themselves headlong into, God, I pray, Lord, that you would call them out of that place, call them out of their caves. Lord, before they become entrapped there, before they get in the woe is me and the Lord Jesus type of situation where, God, they can't escape and their cave becomes a grave. I pray, oh, Master, today, God, that you would help us, Lord, in all these regards, Jesus, in all of these regards. Father, tonight, I pray, Lord, that you would bless us our minds and our hearts, that they would be carefully, Lord Jesus, situated and stayed upon you. God, I give it unto you tonight. I give this service to you, Lord. I give, Lord Jesus, whatever, Lord, seed may have taken root, Lord, and whatever may have fell by the wayside, Lord, and among thorns, Jesus. God, this evening, Lord, I give it all to you. You are the lifter up, Lord, of my head. You are, Master, the lifter up, Lord Jesus, of my head. God, if I came off trail, help me, Lord, to go and to return. God, in the way, Lord Jesus, you would have me go in the way that you would have me return. Lift up your voice right now unto the Lord. Clap your hands unto him and thank his holy name. Thank you for listening. 
If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you, and have a blessed day.